Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. At the beginning of every episode of this podcast, new listeners are urged to go to the very beginning and start there, rather than drop the needle in the middle of a massive story by listening to the instant episode without background. That suggestion has never been more important than today. Because if you join the story midstream right now, it will mean very little to you. For those who have been on the journey, and who remember that when we ended our episode last week, Assyria had laid siege to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria's siege lasts three full years. Shalmaneser V began the siege. Sargon II brings it to an end. Sargon II executes the final consequences that end the northern kingdom. We would note that these Assyrian kings are quite full of themselves, so each keeps a memoir of sorts, their annals, touting their great deeds. Sargon is no exception, and records on his palace walls at Khorsabad that he deports 27,290 survivors from Israel. Similar inscribed clay cylinders from the library of Shorbanapal are in the British Museum's collection. In terms of the consequences descending on the northern kingdom, 2 Kings 17, 1-6 swiftly describes the whole sequence. Though it is not Sargon, nor Sennacherib, nor Tiglath-Pileser that has done this, in some of Isaiah's most poignant words he says, who gave Jacob to the spoiler, and Israel to the robbers? Was it not Yahweh, against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? Isaiah forty-two twenty-four. We do not have the heart to rehearse it all over again, especially since the writer of Kings has so expertly and fully done so. If you have yet to actually take out an owner's manual in the course of all our time with you, we beg you this one time, and politely ask those who've gone along the whole trip, to open up or key in Second Kings 17, 1-23. As you read, call to mind all we've discussed and all the attempts we've made to avoid this moment as Kings processes the final outcome. Fortunately, we are us, and this is not a moment for which we are unprepared. Though the people and kings of Israel have failed in the north, the Abra plan has not. Though Judah and Jerusalem still stand, Ahaz and his escapades will leave little behind to Hezekiah, and though Hezekiah will be a good king, only one of the seven to follow him will have the same faith in me. So it should come as no surprise that Judah's days are numbered as well. And yet, though the people fail me, I will not fail them. 
or you. Even though our covenant requires these consequences, the Abra plan is not compromised by them. In fact, it is in the midst of coming exile that the Abra plan is cast again into the future. And it is the prince of prophets, Isaiah, who sends it there. Despite the current circumstance, it's clear that it is by and through humans, individual humans who are by and large faithful to us, that is, through humans that we move the Abra plan forward. For goodness sake, it's even named after a human, Abraham. If you look back over the substantial journey on which we've gone with our people to this point, and with you, I might add, you can see how we have highlighted the births of major players across the plan. You'll also remember that when it was time for a turning point, we usually called a barren woman to bear a son. Think of all of them. Sarah bore Isaac, Rebecca bore Jacob, Rachel bore Joseph, Manoah bore Samson, Hannah bore Samuel. Other pivotal people who couldn't boast of birth from a formerly barren womb had some unique aspect to their birth that signaled our personal involvement on some level. Moses thrust in the thrushes. David the last and runt of his litter. Solomon chosen as a son of grace in spite of his parents' adulterous hookup. Isaiah has spoken already of the birth of an important child which we've already worked through a bit from Ahaz's point of view. The child's early developmental stages served as a timer of sorts, counting down the final days of Israel. We also briefly mentioned that the coming of Isaiah's son, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens, was a forecast. And you think the kids on the playground made fun of your name. Poor spoiler had a devil of a time with his. Since we like doing things in threes, we have Isaiah prophesy the coming of a third child in the prophet's ninth chapter. I dare you to drop everything and read its first eleven verses. Let us say, going into this passage, that at first blush it would again be assumed at the time that the forecast child is also to play a part in the instant swirling context of Israel, Aram, Judah, and Assyria and that the exalted language we employ vaunts the redeeming qualities of Ahaz's coming son, Hezekiah, who, we've already said, is going to be a stand-up fellow. It was fine to see it so. By now, however, we hope we've reached a point with you where you can see how frequently we work across habitats and ages simultaneously with our words in Tom of which this particular instance in Isaiah is perhaps the most striking example in all the manual. The words of Isaiah 9 speak hope directly into Isaiah's time and generation, hope that this time of present darkness, pressure, and oppression will cease and give way to light and stability under a trustworthy ruler who's got my enthusiastic approval. These things will all be true under Hezekiah. However, there are strong markers in Isaiah's slash our words here that insinuate and in fact require another fulfillment as well. 
The opening mention of my contempt for Zebulun and Naphtali refers to Israel's infidelity and its consequences as Assyria begins consuming the north, starting with its northernmost territories and their trade routes to the Mediterranean Sea. And so the first marker for which the weighted words to follow are meant is that this northern territory, now lost to Assyria, is going to play a pivotal role in bringing our promise of hope to be. That area formerly possessed by those two tribes is just to the north and west of the Sea of Galilee, though it is now firmly under enemy rule and will remain so for some time. The starting point of what's to come is Galilee. We won't go over this lick with a fine-toothed comb, but at least two other facets to this prophecy qualify it as speaking past Hezekiah's coming rosy reign to ultimate fulfillment by a further, fuller qualified candidate. The names, for one. Everybody knows the names, right? In the sixth verse, there's nothing remarkable about a king having authority or being called a wonderful counselor, think Solomon's renowned wisdom, or Prince of Peace, though it's admittedly hard to find one that hasn't had some kind of territorial struggle under his reign. However, when we get to Mighty God and Everlasting Father, a yellow flag gets thrown on the field. Sure, Egypt has been saying all along that its kings are gods, or at least their direct descendants. This is so very much not so with our people, however. We have been on a strict campaign with our children from the outset to establish very clear boundary lines when it comes to the divine. As in, there's us, we are divine, and then there's everything else. None of it is divine whether it's a tree, statue, mountain, astronomical phenomenon, or human. As beautiful as our creation is, it is so because we have made it. You'll recall that a primary point in the Genesis lessons is that creation is separate from us. No pantheism, animism, or dwelling in all things force. Sorry, George. Look up God in any dictionary of the day, and there's a note that says, See Yahweh. Now, Hezekiah is going to be a decent king, especially in contrast to his dad Ahaz, but Hezekiah is not going to be mighty God. As to everlasting father, you can get away with calling a king the nation's father. But that Everlasting part also disqualifies Hezekiah as the primary subject of this prophecy. Then, of course, we have the language in the next verse that bandies about references to eternity with abandon, continual, unending authority, endless peace, and the signal turn of phrase appointing the prophesied coming child to the throne and kingdom of David forevermore. So, the divine names ascribed to this king and the references to his eternal reign point to someone besides Hezekiah or his children. Obviously, this language points to me, somehow. And this, perhaps, is the greatest turning point in all the owner's manual, and one of the reasons Isaiah is the Prince of Prophets. We have been on this educational arc with our people since day one, 
bringing them along with new information about us when they are developmentally advanced enough to handle new truth. I don't tell Abraham I am the only God, just that I want to be his God. If he trusts in me, I'll have his back, and we'll do something really special together. I am not even telling the old man that I am stronger than his dad's and neighbor's gods, just that I want the exclusivity of going steady with Abraham and his coming family. The I am stronger than the others phase kicks in largely with the exodus from Egypt, when I pick off a representative handful of their deities, as my mastery over their various territories of alleged influence is proven, sign after sign. In each instance, I perform a wonder which should be an easy match for one of their departmental deities, but none of them show. I am still not playing the only God card, just proving my greatestness and doubling down on our and Israel's mutual exclusive rights to and with one another. You'll recall, then, that I announce my only God status in spectacular fashion on Mount Carmel, in a duel with the God perceived to be my greatest threat, if all the stories about him had been true. Of course they're not. It's not a duel if there's only one contestant, and I am the only one to appear that day. So, we've moved from a God status to strongest God status to only God status, moving across many generations to do so. And so, in the context of the whole story we've gone over thus far, this one and only God policy is a recent development. You can also see how we have limited the information we have provided our children across the arc of this important track establishing this truth in our children's minds. Up until now, in the course of that relationship, we have restricted ourselves in all our references to the single first-person pronoun, I. I am. I am God. I am your God. I am the only God. You can't fully imagine who I am. I am other. I am greater than any combination of attributes you can see in your mind's eye. You've been operating with us on a level different from ancient Israel's this whole time, as we unpacked early on some rudimentary concepts about us and noted that Spirit moved on his own over the waters in the very first words of Tom. Because of the nature of this particular exercise in which we are engaged, I have continued to track largely with what has been revealed thus far in the text we've covered, not drawing a great deal into our interchange here from what is yet to come. You may pat yourself on the back for being further along in the track with regard to who I am. Just don't get cocky. Because we are so still limiting ourselves to what you are developmentally able to process. You just happen to have been born into a different habitat. Lucky you. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, 
give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.